It's good to be back with you today after being absent last week. Um, I, we went out to visit uh, Megan's family in Indiana, and I, uh, you know, I enjoy <coughs> taking trips with Megan and the kids and uh, going to see family, going on vacation, but, but there's always part of me that just struggles with, with being, uh, being away and missing a Sunday morning together with you all. And so, uh, you know, it's a blessing to be a part of the worldwide body of, of Christ, but uh, but there's just no substitute for the local church body uh, that I get to be a part of. And so, so it, is, it is good to be back today. Um, uh, during our trip to Indiana, uh, one of the things that we did was uh, we spent some time with, uh, uh, with, we spent some time at Megan's brother's house. Um, so we visited with, with him, our sister-in-law, our, our three-year-old nephew, um, they've got a new puppy named Buddy, and, and a couple horses as well. They have two horses named uh, Harvey and Scotty. And now, now, although I grew up, uh, grew up in the country, I feel pretty comfortable around most farm animals. Uh, I'd say horses are the ones with which I have the least experience, uh, just, just no question. I, I've never even ridden a horse before, so just don't have a lot of experience there. But, but in preparation for today's sermon, I was doing some, uh, some research into horses, and, and so while we were there, uh, I was picking the, the brain of my sister-in-law. I wanted her to verify what I'd been reading specifically regarding the eyesight of horses. Uh, I was finding this kind of interesting. Now, when it comes to the eyesight of humans, we, we have uh, uh, the range of our horizontal eyesight, you know, what we can see along the horizon. They, they say it's typically 200 degrees. We have a horizontal eyesight of 200 degrees. So, so that means if you stuck your arms out in a straight line beside you and, and had your head pointing straight ahead. If you just moved your eyes, and you can try this now or later if you want, but if you just move your eyes, you can see about 10 degrees behind your each arm, which would make sense. 180 degrees would be straight, so 10 on each side. That'd be about a 200 degree range of horizontal eyesight. Now, now for horses, due, due to the structure of their head and, and, and the placement of their eyes, they have a horizontal eyesight of nearly 350 degrees, which is incredible. I mean, that means that a horse can almost literally see behind themselves. There's just such a very small blind spot behind them, and, and a little one in front as well, oddly enough, but, but uh, 350 degrees. I mean, that, that, <laughs> that's kind of crazy. And, and the range of motion in their eyesight is essential because horses are animals of prey. And so they rely on that eyesight to, to give them that early warning when there's a predator nearby. Got to constantly be on alert, and so that big range of eyesight allows them to do that. Now, a problem arose when mankind sought to domesticate horses and utilize them for our own purposes. So, so when, when man seeks to get a horse to... Uh, to pull something or race around a track um, or, or uh, back in history to ride into battle, a horse's wide range of eyesight actually became more of a distraction because the horse would see everything that was taking place around it. It would be distract, distracted from uh, the singular focus that the person riding the horse 
had. And, and so, so with all of that commotion going on around the horse because it would see it, it might veer off course, it might become frightened, have increased anxiety. And so to solve this problem, man has created all kinds of blinders or, or blinkers, as, as, the, as I found out they were called, to, to narrow the horse's eyesight and, and consequently to narrow then their focus. So you wear those blinkers and a horse can no longer see all of those things that's going on around it and it instead focuses on what lies in front of it. Now even though mankind has a narrower range of focus than, uh, than horses would, we can become distracted by things happening around us, can't we? Our, our eyesight's not as big, but, but we can still become distracted. We, and, and when we are distracted, we too can, we can veer off course, we can become frightened, uh, we can experience increased anxiety. And what we're going to see today in Luke's passage is that uh, I think this is especially true when it, when it comes to our focus on the future. That we can be distracted when it comes to our focus on the future. So, so I'd encourage you to turn with me to Luke chapter 12. In, in the passage today, we're going to examine three different things that can distract us. And, and in examining these distractions, we'll also see that Jesus gives us direction regarding how to regain our focus in each, each of those situations. So, so let's start first in verse 13. This is Luke chapter 12, verse 13. It says, someone in the crowd said to him, said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you've prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So, so Jesus had been teaching the crowds that gathered around him. And in this crowd was a man who had a situation he was dealing with. And when he felt there was an opportune moment, he spoke up and he asks Jesus to intervene in his situation. You know, presumably this man had heard everything that Jesus was teaching, but, but he had this situation on his mind. He was distracted by this thing. So when, when he spoke to Jesus, there, there was no, no good sermon Jesus or, you know, no dialogue about the things Jesus taught. It was just right into his, really his desire for wealth and money. Jesus got this problem. My inheritance is not being given to me. I need you to intervene. And it's in Jesus' response to this man that we see the first warning about being distracted. Jesus said, be on your guard against all covetousness. 
covetousness. And, and as Jesus often did, he then masterfully illuminated his warning with a story, he told a parable. And remember, a parable isn't a true story, it's a fictional story told in order to make a point. And I, and I think Jesus really makes the point quite well here. Because in the story, in his own covetous desire to hoard his resources for himself, the rich man, he, he, he spoke to himself and said, soul, relax, eat, drink, be merry. But the story takes a, a very abrupt turn when God next speaks to the rich man and says, fool, this night your soul is required of you. I mean, it turns out the man didn't even have one more day to live. And all his hoarding, all his coveting, it, it would only result in someone else taking possession of all of his things. So while in reality his life did not consist of the abundance of his possessions, like Jesus says, he sure lived as though it did. He lived like his life consisted of the abundance of his possessions. And his covetousness distracted him from focusing on the future. Now, uh, you know, before we, before we look to apply this parable um, to our own situation, I, I do want to clarify what I mean when I say future. And, and then this is what I will mean the rest of the morning when I say future. I don't mean a future time during this life. I don't mean two years down the road or 10 years or, or 40 years down the road in this life. That's not what I mean by future. By future, I mean a future time initiated by the return of Jesus and continuing forward into eternity. That, that's the future I'm talking about. The distractions we'll talk about today are things that remove our focus from that future, Jesus' coming and Jesus' eternal kingdom. That's, that's the future that, that I'll mean this morning. So, so back to this parable. <clears throat> I, I'd say it's a, a, a very challenging parable when we consider our context today. And it's not challenging because it's difficult to understand, right? I mean, this is a pretty easy parable to understand. It's challenging because it hits pretty close to home, I think. Our, our context today and our context in our country is one in which we are surrounded by, by so many different things. And, and not only that, the ease of communication nowadays, uh, we're confronted with all kinds of things and objects that, that we maybe never have even been aware of in previous generations. It's like not only are there maybe more things to have, but we know that there's more things to have and we're confronted with that. And I think the opportunity for coveting has always existed, but, but it's maybe intensified in our context today in a unique way. And, and so sometimes we'll, we'll read this parable and there's times where I've heard it used to speak against planning for retirement. Um, there's times where I've heard it used to speak against having any kind of savings account. Um, but that's, that's missing the point. That's missing the point of this story. The problem here is not the man's wealth. The problem is his attitude toward his wealth. He, he was singularly occupied with relaxing and eating and drinking and being merry in this life. He had zero concern for the future, which un, unbeknownst to him was going to begin that night. 
Jesus' second coming, his return was not that night, but that man's death was that night. And in a way, Jesus was coming for him that night. So the temptation for me when I, when I hear this parable can be to look around and, and, and point out everybody who has, has bigger barns, right? I mean, that, that can be the temptation for me. But, but when I respond in that way, I'm, I'm rejecting what Jesus is saying here. It's not about the amount of possessions I do or don't have. It's about my focus being upon the possessions I do or don't have. I mean, that, that's what this parable is driving at. So rather than focusing on myself, rather than attempting to lay up treasure for myself, the, the, the point here is I, I ought to instead be rich toward God. That's how Jesus ends that parable, being rich toward God. There, there's kind of an abstract statement, right? <laughs> being rich toward God. I mean, I, what do we mean by that? I, I, I think there's different ways that we can think about that phrase being rich toward God. I think we can go to places like um, uh, Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 6, where he talks about storing up treasure in heaven. I think that's one way to be rich toward God. <clears throat> I think we can, uh, we can think about it in terms of relationship, investing in our relationship with God. I think that is a way to be rich toward God. I think we can go, I think we can go to Genesis chapter 12, where God's talking to Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'll, I'll bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I think that's, that's a way to be rich towards God. <coughs> Excuse me. And so in a, in a, in a world filled with things that, that can stir up our covetousness, we need those holy blinkers to, to help us focus upon the future. And being rich toward God will do that for us, pursuing relationship with him, viewing our blessings as a tool with which to bless others. Those, those can be those blinkers that keep us focused on the future that is, that is coming. <clears throat> the, that's the direction that Jesus gives us when we think about covetousness. <clears throat> Excuse me. Hopefully my voice holds out before we get through this this morning. So again, right. <coughs> Excuse me. A, a person might say, well, I'm not rich, so, so this whole thing just doesn't apply to me, right? Like, I'm just not rich. Again, I would beg to differ with that assumption, but even so, even after giving that parable, Jesus turned to his disciples and, and he, he spoke to them. He spoke to men who had left everything. He spoke to men who uh, earlier in the book didn't even have enough food to feed themselves. And, and this is what he said to them. He said this, though this is picking it up in verse 22. All right. Luke 12, 22, it says this. He said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, nor about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food, the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They, they neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn. Yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? 
And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom. <coughs> Excuse me. Game back and forth today. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, the treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. <clears throat> so it's not just the rich man in the parable who can be distracted from the future. Those who have little can be distracted as well. They can be so weighed down with anxiety that, that there is distraction there. So, so life does not consist of the abundance of possessions, as we read in verse 15, but, but neither is it about the basics, like food and clothing, as we see in verse 23. And, and Jesus did, like he did other times, he, he took a lesser situation to highlight a greater. <coughs> And so he pointed to how, how um, ravens, how, how they're fed by God, even, they don't, even though they don't, they don't store up, they, they don't uh, plant food. He pointed to lilies, how they're given beauty from God, even though they don't, they don't toil for it, and, and they're even going to be thrown into the fire tomorrow. And so if God cares for the lily raven, if God cares for the lily in those ways, we can be sure that we will be cared by God cared for by God, who, who, is, who has given us much greater value than those things, more than the raven, more than the lily. And again, this, uh, just like the parable of the rich fool can be misapplied, uh, this passage can be too. Th th this isn't a passage uh, that's prohibiting any kind of planning. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't grow food in the ground. Doesn't mean we can't buy in bulk in the grocery store. M much like the parable of the rich fool, the focus here is on the person's attitude. The attitude and their focus. It, it's the anxiety surrounding the food and the clothing that Jesus is highlighting. A person can be so consumed with, with pursuing those things that they lose sight of the future. That future where Jesus will return and where his kingdom uh, will be established where we will spend eternity with him for all of it, uh, for all eternity on, in that kingdom. Now, I, you know, as I was thinking through this, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to be harsh toward anyone who, who has ever been or, or currently is uh, in a position where they have to work two or three jobs in order to, to put food on the table and still find themselves maybe coming up short. I think we have to recognize there's been situations in history where people truly have died from starvation. That food wasn't there for them. 
And God's own people experienced that. At times when the city of Jerusalem was, was under siege, there, there were people who died from starvation. Situations in our world today where, where uh, food and basic necessities are scarce. And so, so I don't want to pretend like, um, like situations like that don't exist. And I don't think Jesus was pretending that situations like that don't exist either. The point he's making here is that in our, in our anxiety regarding our needs, that, that it can distract us from our focus being upon God and upon his kingdom. It doesn't say there's never going to be hungry people. He's leading us to examine the anxiety that, that we can feel in connection with hunger or other needs and, and, and how that anxiety can distract us. And the direction that Jesus gives to us in this instance is to seek God's kingdom and make that our focus. <coughs> seek God's kingdom. And that type of focus <coughs> is possible. It is possible even when we're in the midst of debilitating need. When we recognize that God cares for us even more than he does the raven or the lily. So this passage doesn't downplay needs that we have. Instead, it, it encourages us to, to take the weight of those needs, to take the stress and the anxiety that can come and, and give it to God, place it upon him, trust him as the one who cares for the raven and the lily, but who cares for us as well. Hey, Megan, would you give me a refill? I'm burning through the coffee this morning. <laughs> Thanks so much. Cough drop? Coffee. Why not? Sure, yeah, yeah. Anybody else got anything to help? Or, you know, we'll see what we can do. I'll take whatever you got. <clears throat> All right, now, we'll see what that does. So, so as I was working through this passage, got to verses 33 and 34, and, and they just seemed so out of place to me. It seemed like, you know, God, why, why there? The, this, this admonition to sell possessions, give to the needy, store up treasure in heaven, it seemed better suited to go with the parable of the, of the rich fool earlier. But, but the more I thought about it, the more I was praying about that, I, I, I realized, you know, oddly enough, I realized it does fit here. Luke knew what he was talking about here. Jesus knew what he was talking about here. Yeah, sure, they're good words for the rich man. He, he ought to heed those words as well. But, but it's no less important for the anxious person to heed these words too. The, the best way to address our anxiety regarding our needs and place our trust in God's provision is to walk in generosity. So while anxiety tends to turn a person's focus inward, generosity turns that focus outward, right? Focuses upon others. Focuses upon God's coming kingdom. And it might seem counterintuitive at first, but, but the way we should respond when we are facing needs in our lives is to pursue generosity. <coughs> Seems backwards, right? But in doing so, we get, we get those, the, again, those holy blinkers that limit the distractions from our anxiety and keep us focused upon Jesus and his kingdom. 
And so, you know, what that generosity looks like is going to differ from situation to situation, but, but we ought to address the distraction of anxiety through a generosity that leads us to, again, focusing on others, focusing on God, focusing on his ability to rule over his kingdom. It's really what we're called to do here by Jesus. So he addressed distraction due to coveting. He addressed distraction due to anxiety. And Jesus also addressed distraction that can come due to complacency. Go ahead and look with me at, uh, at verse 35. Jesus went on to say this. He said, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whose master find, whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service. And have them recline at table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch, or in the third, and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. So also you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us, or for all? And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, My master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the, the male and female servants, and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come in a day when he does not expect him, at an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him much will be required, and from him whom they entrusted much they will demand the more. Now, when considering the, the distractions of, of covetousness and anxiety and complacency, I think this one might be the most dangerous. Or at the very least, it's the easiest to miss because it's just not as obvious as the other two. And so Jesus again told a story, this time about, uh, about a master gone to a wedding feast who's returning home without warning. So the good servants those who will receive blessing, uh, they're the ones who, who are awake. They're ready to open the door upon the master's unannounced arrival. And now that return might be in the middle of the night, might be early, early in the morning before the sun rises, but, but they are the ones who are ready nonetheless. And in, in response to that preparedness, the shocking part of the story is seen in verse 37. Uh, when the master finds his servants ready to welcome him, he himself will assume the role of a servant. And he will invite them to sit at his table, and he will serve them. I, I mean, 
that is an unthinkable blessing. And maybe it doesn't shock us like it would have shocked them, but the masters didn't do that for servants. And yet what Jesus says is there is an unthinkable blessing that comes from being ready. The master serves you. And then the opposite of that preparedness we see in verses 45 through 47. The one who complacently assumes that his master is a long time in coming, going to be caught off guard, not going to be ready. When the surprise arrival occurs, that complacent servant will be rewarded with, with a severe beating. Now, we talked a few weeks ago about, uh, about the temptation to allegorize parables. Um, doing so here can lead us down a, what I would say is a dangerous theological trail. We're, we're told in the parable that the servant who knew the master's will but didn't do it received a severe beating and then at the same time, the servant who didn't know the master's will and didn't do it gets a lighter beating. And so the temptation can be to read into this parable some kind of clue about eternal punishment. And I've, I've seen it interpreted this way before, that, that this passage can be used as a, as a foundation for ideas about different levels of punishment within hell, you know, varying degrees of punishment. And I think that goes so far beyond what Jesus is saying here. That's totally missing the point of this parable. The whole point of this story is to highlight the faithful and wise servant from verse 42, who's ready. That's why Jesus is telling this story, not so that we can set up this theology of levels of punishment in hell. I mean, not at all. It's about the faithful and wise servant. The story is told to support Jesus' directive in verse 40, to be ready. Be ready for the coming of the Son of Man. That's what we are supposed to take away from this. And so when we find ourselves distracted by complacency, we ought to consider that Jesus can return at any moment. And so we have to be ready. We have to be ready for that. And, and I think the question that we ought to pose, that I ought to pose to myself, posed to all of us is if I knew today was my last day to live before Jesus returned, what would I do today? What would I do? And I, I know that's a very cliche question. It is, but it's the exact question we're prompted to ask by, by Jesus here. If, if the person living his or her life knew what hour the Son of Man was coming, they would not allow their life to be wasted. That's what Jesus essentially says, so what would I do today if I knew the Son of Man was coming tonight? What would I do? Ought to be the question that's continually on my mind, and I'll confess too often that's not the case. Too often I'm, I'm distracted by complacency. It's not that I don't think he's coming again. It's not that I don't want him to come again. I just become complacent regarding his coming. So I wanted to, well, well, with, with Fight Club starting in a couple weeks, I've, I've been thinking what, one of the things that we do each chapter of Fight Club is we give something up for those 10 weeks. And so, men, this is also my shameless plug to, to consider uh, joining Fight Club as we start in a couple weeks. But, but each chapter we choose to give something up that can be a crutch in our lives. And, and so as I was thinking about complacency, 
regarding the future, I've decided that what I want to do during Fight Club is, uh, regarding my phone, is to do not use my phone for the first hour of the day when I wake up in, 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 a, in a desire to, to have my focus guided upon Christ instead of all of the other things that the phone puts in front of me. And then in addition, when I'm, when I'm home, at, at night especially, to put my phone upstairs in my bedroom, not in my pocket or on the counter, kitchen counter, just, you know, begging. You know how it works, <laughs> beckoning you to pick it up and use it. You know, I feel like, I, I feel like it, it can too easily breed complacency within me. And I don't say this to guilt anyone else into doing the same thing, but, but I know myself and I know that if I say it up here and give you permission to hold me accountable, which you now have, that it's, it's uh, more likely to, to carry that through. And, and I know the guys in Fight Club will hold me accountable to that as well. But I want to be ready for when Jesus returns. And, and, and I think having an eye or not having an eye on my cell phone can, uh, can aid me in that regard. So uh, Jesus is coming. He's coming again. His kingdom is coming, and, and he is going to reign from his throne for all to clearly see. It's going to happen. The question from this entire section is, am I ready for it? Am I ready for that to happen? Am I focused upon that future, or, or has covetousness clouded my vision? Am I focused on that future, or has anxiety clouded my vision? Am I focused on that future, or has complacency clouded my vision? And, and you know, as we saw in, in these passages, Jesus gave specific direction in these passages regarding what can be done to keep us focused on, on that future, focused in the face of those three specific distractions. But in a more general sense, no matter what things might serve to distract us in our lives, you know, what sits on the table this morning is meant to sharpen our focus. It's meant to keep us focused on that future that lies ahead. And in, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul is, uh, he's giving instructions to the church regarding communion. And I'm going to read some of what he wrote, and, and notice at the end of this passage that I'll read how Paul links communion to the second coming of Jesus. So this is 1 Corinthians 11, uh, starting in verse 23. Paul writes and says, for, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So, so we eat the bread, we, we drink the cup, as a remembrance of Jesus, a remembrance both of his past sacrifice, but also of his future return. Paul says we do that and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, until he returns. 
Once Jesus returns, there's, there's no more need for communion in this manner. But until then, there is. And so we regularly gather at the table to proclaim his death until he comes. This is another way that we focus upon the future, try to remove those distractions from our lives. Um, so the elders are going to come forward, and uh, Tessa is going to play piano for us. But as a reminder this morning, uh, the, the communion table is uh, it's open to all those who are members of the body of Christ. Um, you don't have to be you don't have to be a member of this specific church, but in keeping with the instructions given to us in the Bible, we we do ask that only those who've professed faith in Jesus as their Savior take of of the bread and the juice. And if you've never done that before, but but you you feel that this morning, you're being led in that direction. Uh, We'd be overjoyed if your first your first act as a believer in Jesus would be to take communion with us. So, definitely feel free to to do that as well. And I know I said Tessa is playing piano. Don't freak out. We do have music, so I apologize for that. I've got a lot of things I'm trying to focus on this morning. So, um, but in all seriousness, that this keeps our focus on Jesus. Uh, we, we are we're called to. Remember that he's coming, focus upon his coming, and, and anticipate that coming as well. And so let's allow, let's allow communion to do that for us this morning.